0: I want to welcome you this morning. My name is Brian White. I'm so glad you're here this morning. And as Jeremy said, this is just kind of a weekend of celebration. Um, Friday night, we had a, um, our fundraiser for the youth. Um, every year, our junior class, and, and we kind of combined that since COVID right now, our junior and senior class uh, go down to Honduras. And we've been working in Honduras for quite some time, and we work very long term in mountain villages. It's an amazing experience, and it's such a pivotal time in our young person's lives. And historically, traditionally, I, I remember our, um, our church uh, accountant, or um, I don't know, what is, what's what's Mark's title? Is he accountant? Okay, our church accountant. He's, so I was in a meeting with, and I remember Mark Brault saying, you know, doesn't matter if we have four kids or 44 kids, just traditionally we always uh, raise 24,000 in that fundraiser. And that was just like our, our blanket. We may get 500 or 1,000 more or less, but that was kind of what we've always done. And we had not done this fundraiser for quite some time. Uh, we hadn't really needed to uh, with COVID and everything, and we had some money in that account. So this is the first time we've done this fundraiser in, I think, three years now. And so we were just kind of hoping that, you know, we, we would stay with the history. But we also made some pretty significant changes um, in that fundraiser. It had been an auction, and we um, really, and this was the brainchild of uh, several people, including Justin, our youth pastor. Um, they wanted to change some things up. And so we were hoping, well, you know, usually we raise twenty-four, And we raised $42,000 right away That was amazing, $42,000. Uh, so many people were working behind the scenes on so many levels, uh, particularly our kids. It was really neat. All of the kids came by to every single table, and we got to talk with them about their expectations regarding the trip, and it was, it was a phenomenal evening. Thank you all so much uh, for your support on that. Um, yesterday, we, we celebrated the life of, of Brett Soike and um, our our. Prayers are just with the Soecki family. Uh, it's been quite a journey, and we love them very much. So we've been focusing on the disciples' journey uh, in the Gospel of Mark for the last several weeks as we're preparing for Easter. And last week, I, you know, I really wanted to hit. We saw Jesus heal a blind man and a deaf man, and all the while, Mark was in, in the narrative. He was weaving the the. the, the this deaf man and this blind man and their healing were, were kind of highlighting the deafness and the blindness of the disciples is the point. Because all the while, Jesus has been sowing the seeds of the kingdom right in front of them, and they just can't hear it. They can't see it. They're, they're just... And then he go in private, and he would explain it all to the disciples, but even then, they just didn't really get it. They were deaf and blind to what was going on right in front of them. And then we ended last week, if you remember, with a story of a blind man, it was a little bit different, who um, at first was partially healed, and Jesus had prayed on him, and he asked him, what do you see? And he said, well, I kind of see images and shapes, but it's like trees walking around. And then Jesus laid his hands on him again, and the man could see. And it was kind of like Mark was telling us that the disciples, they kind of see what's going on. Their eyes are kind of opened, but they just see these shapes walking around, kind of like trees walking around, rather than a very clear vision of what God is doing in front of them. And that is, the Messiah is standing right in front of them. And our hope is in the power of Jesus to ultimately heal the blind, heal the deaf. So the question we have at this point as we read through Mark, will Jesus, will Jesus heal the blindness of the disciples? Will he help our unbelief as disciples? And this story moves us into a hinge in Mark. We're going to look at today, begin with Mark 8, 27 through 30. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And they answered John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. And he asked, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone. So there again, Peter seems to be getting it right. He has the right answer. Jesus asked, Who do people say I am? And Peter responds, You are the Messiah. Is their blindness healed? We're going to find out pretty quick. Their eyes are are like that blind man who had the two-stage healing. Their eyes are partially open. But Peter's still like this blind man who's just kind of seeing trees walking around. He says the right thing. You are the Messiah. That's the right answer. But does making an orthodox statement, even if it's the correct orthodox statement, does making an orthodox statement about Jesus mean that you're a disciple? All throughout Mark, who has recognized Jesus as the Messiah? Well, the demons have, right? They've said, you are the Son of God. Bob Tannehill wrote, our statements concerning Jesus are only important when they have direct implications for our understanding of what is deepest and truest in our lives and the world. They're important only when our affirmation about Jesus is also a decision about the future course of our lives. A true understanding of Jesus has direct implications for the life of a disciple. So is somebody a disciple just because they say the right thing like you are the Messiah? It's like Peter can kind of make out the shape that's walking around in front of him, but he can't tell the difference between a walking human and a walking tree. And I think the real issue is the word follow. Follow. Is calling Jesus the right thing, does that translate into direct implication for your life? Does calling Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, does that mean Jesus is leading our lives? I mean, does that mean Jesus is leading our decisions and our ethics? When you follow someone, and we've talked about this so many times, when you follow someone, you go where they go and you do what they do. That's what a disciple of someone is. You, you follow someone, you go where they go, you do what they do. That's what it means to be someone's disciple. And so often, you know, we whittle that down into, well, I have my Jesus in my heart. But it doesn't translate into our actions. But now, what if you're willing, or you're following a man who willingly goes to the cross and gives himself for others? He didn't really mean that we're supposed to follow Him into suffering, right? He didn't really mean we're supposed to follow Him to the cross, right? What do you do with that? You just kind of pretend that you're seeing a shape in front of you moving and you say, well, I have Jesus in my heart. Is that following? So just like He's said so many times in the Gospel of Mark so far, Jesus says, don't, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. Now, we've, we've talked about that before, but I think it needs to come back. So, throughout Mark, Jesus has been saying when everybody, anybody recognizes him, usually it's the demons, you are the Son of God, the Messiah, don't tell anyone. Or he'll do a miracle, he'll heal someone, and he'll say, don't tell anybody. And like I say, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's called the Messianic secret in Mark. It's in the other Gospels, but really, really heavy in Mark. And and, and it's a a big deal. I know who you are, the son of a... Don't tell anybody. All throughout Mark. So Jesus, Jesus doesn't want to be known as a miracle-working Messiah. Jesus is going to radically reframe what it means to be Messiah... And it's going to include a cross and an empty tomb. And they simply don't have enough information to understand what being Messiah is all about yet. Something's been missing. But at this point, he tells the disciples what has been missing. Mark eight thirty-one through 33. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, after three days rise again. And he said this all quite openly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. So this is what has been missing. This Is what it means to be the Messiah, Jesus is saying. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the important people, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And I love in Mark verse 32, 832, he's very he says, Jesus said this very plainly. He said, "Very. It's like he's saying they could not miss this, right?" And remember back in chapter four, where, where Jesus said the mysteries of the kingdom were what taught to outsiders in parables and riddles, but the insiders, his disciples, they they got the explanation. I mean, he was clear, and this is a perfect example of that. He's clear as he can be. His path is going to be suffering. His path is going to be rejection. His path is going to be death, but there will be a resurrection. Now, if a, follow, or a disciple is a follower, is there any surprise that they would have a struggle with what he's saying? I mean, get it. They don't want to follow him there. At first, it's just Peter, but by verse 33, you know, it's pretty clear all the disciples are struggling. There's a lot going on here. title Son of Man is really important. And, and it comes from the book of Daniel. And we just you know, came off of a, a study on the book of Daniel. And that was the purpose, uh, honestly, was I wanted to prepare us for Mark. Um, there's some really important links between Daniel and Mark. And one of them is the Son of Man. And in Daniel, Son of Man receives from God dominion over all people all people of the earth, and then this promise, this promise of an everlasting kingship. So Daniel 7, 13-14, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven and he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence and he was given authority, glory, sovereign power, all nations, all peoples of every language worshipped him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Jesus used this concept of the Son of Man for himself. When he talked about having authority on earth and authority in the final judgment, the final redemption. But he did something that no one could have seen coming. He linked Daniel's son of man with Isaiah's suffering servant songs. And I want to get into this a little bit. Suffering servant songs in in, Isaiah. Um, They're all about Israel's salvation coming through a time of suffering and persecution. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by others. A man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. As one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him as no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities, carried our diseases, and we accounted him as stricken, struck down by God, afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the punishment was made that made us whole. By his bruises we are healed." All of we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to our own way and the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so He did not even open His mouth. By a perversion of justice, He was taken away. Who could have imagined His future? For he was cut from the land of the living, strucken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich. Although he had done them no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So the people of Jesus' day, they understood the Messiah what as a warrior king. A warrior king that would liberate the Jews from the Romans. That was the expectation of the disciples, of the Messiah. That's Everybody knew that's what the Messiah was. But Jesus' concept of the Messiah was to merge Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7 with Isaiah's suffering servant songs, chapters 52, 53, there's a couple others as well. So in a nutshell, the Son of Man, going to bring about the triumph of Israel, by becoming the suffering servant through whom God would redeem Israel as He willingly experienced this time of suffering. And that was Jesus' concept of the Messiah, only He would open it up for the world. He took the concept Messiah, Psalm 2, there's so many of them throughout the Old Testament, uh, from the Hebrew Scriptures, and He merged it with Daniel's son of man, and then also with Isaiah's suffering servant. He put them all together. The suffering Son of Man is the Messiah who will redeem. This is who Jesus is saying, I am. This is what He's explaining to the disciples when Peter rebukes Him. He is the suffering Son of Man. Peter didn't want to hear that right? Peter, he rebukes Jesus. This does not match my understanding of Messiah. I mean, son of man, suffering servant, those are three different things. They're, the, the Messiah isn't supposed to suffer. Peter and the other disciples, they, they don't want to follow the path of suffering. So my, the Messiah is supposed to be a victorious leader, I mean, pretty soon they're going to be arguing just a little bit in Mark. They're going to be arguing about who gets to be the greatest and sit at the right hand of the king. (laughs) That's the Messiah they want to follow. And this is a temptation. Let's just skip the suffering part. Skip the servant part. Just be the triumphant son of man coming on the clouds. You can merge that with Messiah Jesus. Next thing you know, Jesus is looking at the disciples and he says to people, get behind me, Satan. This is the biggest conflict we've seen between Jesus and the disciples yet. Jesus' way of suffering is going one way and the followers are being led by their self-concern. That's who they're following. Mark 8, 34, he called the crowds with his disciples and said, If anyone wants to become my follower, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, they will save it. What will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. And He said, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come with power. You want to follow Me? You need to take up your cross because that's where we're going. You're going to follow me. You need to know up front, there is going to be a significant cost. This is not just about denying the self. There's going to be serious risk involved. Self-preservation. Saving your life means you're going to lose it. But giving what is most precious to you Offering your sense of security. Whatever your pearl of great price is, losing your life is ultimately going to save your life. Now, I think we, we need to not, because p- people try to do this, kind of weasel around this and say, well, if the goal is saving my life, I can be selfless because that means I'm going to gain my life and I'll give anything for that. That's not Jesus' logic here at all, right? It's all about the willingness to lose whatever is most precious, where our self-worth um, um, is, our security. He's saying you need to put yourself in a position to lose that for someone else. Give your life like that. Live your life like that. Ultimately, you'll gain everything. Life is like a gift that we receive when we leave behind that self-indigenous, when we leave behind that sense of security. Follow me, Jesus is saying, into self-denial. Follow me into suffering, follow me into death, then you'll receive life. And there's a huge conflict. And as we progress from Mark, we're gonna find this is exactly what happens to Jesus. I mean, he's describing his, his path. But the disciples, they haven't got there yet. That's why you know, they can't even understand what Jesus is trying to explain. There is no way they can understand what he is saying at this point. The resurrection is what the kingdom of God coming on power means. And the cross is all about the self-denial and the suffering and losing the life. But it's the path to the resurrection. The kingdom of God coming with power, saving life. I mean, suffering of cross, victory of the resurrection, they are completely linked. You cannot separate them from one another. The move from the cross to the resurrection is all about losing life to gain life. Which is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the, the suffering Son of Man. This is what he means by Messiah. We'll come back to this. Chapter 9, 2, 8. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. And led them up a mountain high apart by themselves. And he was transfigured. His clothes became a dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach. And there appeared Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them. From the cloud there came a voice, This is my Son, the Beloved. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, only Jesus. So Jesus takes the in-group of the in-group out of the disciples. This is the big three. Peter, James, and John. They're as in-group as you can get. They go up a mountain, and they see Jesus just shimmering, right? Right? Mark says his clothes are whiter than anybody could ever bleach them. And then they see Elijah and Moses. And in Greek, it says uh, Peter says, let's, let's put up three tents. Three tents. And then this cloud comes and surrounds them and God's voice comes from the cloud. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Now Mark didn't record Jesus saying anything on the mountain. So when God's voice says, listen to him, he means listen to what he just said about being the suffering son of man. And that's exactly what they're going to talk about when they start going down the mountain. I love the story of the transfiguration. So it's a point in Mark where the veil between heaven and earth gets so thin, it disappears. And they can see this, this greater reality very clearly. Again, there's Daniel's stuff here, but we don't have time for that. So, Elijah met God on the mountaintop, right? First Kings. Moses met God on the mountaintop, Exodus. If you remember, Moses' face was shining in Exodus twenty-four or 34 when he saw God. And Elijah heard the still small voice of God up on that mountain. But that's not all, because in Exodus 40, the divine presence was in the cloud. When they decided, when they dedicated the temple, 1 Kings 8, the cloud filled the temple. God's presence was in the cloud. We talked about this over the last several weeks, but it's so important. In the wilderness in Exodus, God dwelled with his people in the tents, the tabernacles until 1 Kings 8 when they dedicated the temple and God's presence filled the temple in a cloud as Solomon prayed the prayer of dedication. The point is heaven and earth came together then. God is now dwelling among them in Jesus. Heaven and earth are coming together in Jesus. And Peter kind of sees it But it's not real clear. He's like the blind man that's seeing trees walking around. Transfiguration is saying the tabernacle in the wilderness in Exodus, the temple in 1 Kings, they were pointers to this. This is what God had planned all along. This is it. Peter, James, John, they're getting a glimpse into God's ultimate plan on the mountain. He's just laying it all out for them. Jesus is my son. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is my dwelling place among people. I am tabernacling among you. Listen to him. Mark 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept them out of themselves, questioning what is this rising from the dead could mean. Then they asked, why do the scribes and say Elijah must come first? And he said, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. How then is it written about the Son of Man, that he is going to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written So on the way down the mountain, Jesus goes back to the suffering Son of Man. He's trying to explain this to them. Then he says, don't tell anybody about it until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Then, then it is all going to be clear. Then everyone will finally get it. They'll finally understand. Now, if we were in a Bible study and we had a bunch of time, we look at Malachi 4, Uh, Talk about Elijah coming back, restoring all things, the day of the Lord. Jesus is saying John the Baptist is Elijah, and and we don't have that time, so just go read Malachi 4. (laughs) And we're skipping a bunch of other stuff, too. But Mark 9, 14. When they came to the disciples, so this is when they get down the mountain, they saw a great crowd around them. Some scribes were arguing. And the whole crowd saw him and they immediately overcome with awe and they ran forward to greet him. And he asked, what were you arguing with them about? And someone in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. And he answered, You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought him. And the Spirit saw him immediately and convulsed the boy, fell on the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the Father, How long has this been happening? And he said, From childhood. It's often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. If you're able to do anything, have pity on, how, on us and help us. And Jesus said, If you were able, all things can be done for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus saw the crowd coming together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, you spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him. Never enter him again. After crying out convulsing terribly, it came out. The boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he was able to stand. Can you hear the echoes of Jairus' daughter we talked about two weeks ago? When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus said, this kind can only come out through prayer. So you remember what happened to Moses when he came down from the mountain and he found the Hebrews, what they were worshiping, that golden calf? It's not that bad. But the twelve, when Jesus comes down the mountain, well, ten, or nine, because he's got three. That's a story problem. <laughs> but he comes down the mountain and he finds his disciples They aren't able to heal this boy possessed. And and He had given them the power to do this before, right? I mean, they had done this before. It's not like they couldn't do it. But the disciples... And He's so frustrated. How long must I put up with you? And then He says, this kind can only be driven out through prayer. Jesus is going to say in Mark chapter 11... Faith is the key to prayer. Faith is the key to prayer. I don't think Jesus is saying they didn't pray. I mean, he has modeled that for them. I do think he's saying the issue is a lack of faith on their part. Because it's faith that makes prayer effective. And that's what Jesus and the boy's father talk about is faith, right? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, that's a pretty direct, heartfelt prayer. And it has to do with faith. Help my unbelief. Once again, a nameless character in Mark is contrasting the faith of the disciples. This boy's dad is a model of faith. They just don't have it. I mean, these guys, they have the inside track, but they just see trees walking around still, Right? But I think there's more going on. Luke tells us, Luke, in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus goes up the mountain and he's transfigured as he prays. And in that moment as he prayed, heaven and earth came together. Something happened. The disciples got a glimpse, but they were only able to peer through the veil and see to the other side. Totally Daniel. And what did they see? They saw Moses and Elijah. God was bringing the law, Moses, the prophets, Elijah together, right in front of them. I mean, God, God is doing this in their midst, but how, how, could they see it clearly? Did they have enough faith to see? Is their vision blurry? Did they pray for faith in the midst of their unbelief, like the boy's father? Or they just see trees walking around? We'll find out as we continue. So I think for us who would follow Jesus today, what does Messiah mean to you? Are we just looking for a miracle worker who will solve our problems for us? Or do we invite him into our, our dead spots And offer those for a resurrection. Are we just here to say the right words? Are we just here to look the right way? Is it about presentation? Or is it about a real, authentic faith that actually forms our decisions, that informs our ethics, our behavior? And what if we are called to a dramatic life change? Do we follow? What happens if Jesus' path means rejection and suffering? I mean, if it costs us something, do we follow? And what about when that... Path of Jesus means we need to leave our source of security behind. What do we do? do? We just pretend we just kind of see trees walking around, and I just say the right thing, or do I pray, Lord, help my unbelief? Jesus can make the blind see and the deaf hear. And that is our saving grace. You pray with me, Lord, I thank you on this day for the love that you have shown to us. And Jesus, the point in which heaven and earth merge, the point where you dwell among us, the place where you take what is dead and lost and you redeem it, you bring forth life and hope. Lord, in our unbelief, hear our prayer. Amen.